listener. So Barbara Walters did a big exercise with the CIA and a bunch of other really smart political scientists. And the goal was to find out the indications that would tell you whether a country was likely to go into a period of civil war. You know, what were the early warning signs? And they did a huge amount of work on that. And then when they looked at it, they realised a lot of those signs were in the United States itself. Now, the CIA is a foreign intelligence agency, so it doesn't look at what's happening in America. It looks at the rest of the world and seeks to gather intelligence and inform the United States government about what's happening in the rest of the world and how to defend itself. But it's there in plain sight. America, according to Barbara Walters, based on her work with the CIA, the United States faces a real risk of civil war. And after what we saw on the 6th of January 2021, who could say she's wrong? Is America at risk of a civil war? The short answer is yes. And I'll give you the background to put that in context. Starting in about 2017, In 2017, I was invited to be a member of a task force run by the CIA. One of the goals of the task force was to come up with a predictive model that would help the U.S. government predict what countries around the world were likely to experience political instability, violence, and civil war. And we basically took all the hundreds of studies that have been done on this, and we told them every possible factor that looked like it could be important. And it was things like poverty and income inequality, whether a country was large, for example, whether it had lots of rough terrain. There were 38 factors that we gave to the data analysts. And they went and they created this model and they worked on it until they came up with a model that predicted about 80% of the cases. And they came back and they said, only two factors were highly predictive. And it wasn't the factors that we thought they were gonna say. One factor was something that um, we called anocracy. That's, That's just a fancy term for partial democracy. It's a country that has elements of democracy, but elements of autocracy. The second factor was whether citizens in those anocracies organized their political parties around race, religion, or ethnicity. So when a country had these two factors, the task force considered it at high risk of instability and violence, and it was put on a watch list. We actually called it the watch list, and we sent that list to the White House. So, you know, here I am, I'm on the task force. We meet four times a year in a hotel conference room in suburban Virginia. We talk about Venezuela, we talk about Turkey, we talk about all these countries around the world, but we never ever talk about the United States. For your listeners, the CIA is legally not allowed to. So the U.S.'s democracy was downgraded three times since 2016 by the measure used by the CIA. The first was in 2016, 
when international election monitors came to monitor the U.S.'s election and deemed it free but not entirely fair. The U.S.'s own intelligence agencies had found that the Russians had in fact successfully meddled in that election. So we were downgraded then for basically elections that weren't entirely fair. Can I can I just, just interrupt you there? I mean, the American democracy is to some extent unfair by design because, you know, you've got a, uh, a Senate in which every state has two senators and, of course, some states are enormous, like California and New York and Texas, and some are very small, like Wyoming and the Dakotas. So the, the Senate is not representative of the population in the same way the House of Representatives is designed to be. And, of course, that, that impacts on the Electoral College. So, you know, Trump won 2016 legitimately in the had a majority of Electoral College votes, but he had was nowhere near a majority. In fact, he had a minority of the popular vote. So is is that I mean that's that's in your constitution. It's been there forever, or pretty much forever. But is that a is that do you think that is a, going to become a growing problem in terms of the perceived unfairness of American democracy, or do Americans accept that? Okay, this is okay. I'm going to try to parse the the answer. The American America's democracy has a whole series of very undemocratic features that democracies like Australia's or Denmark's or, or Switzerland don't have. Um, and it makes our democracy particularly vulnerable to backsliding. Having said that, Americans, the, the, if America has a civil war, which will, which will take this a form of an insurgency, it will not be the groups that are excluded or who who are losers in this unfair, you know, electoral college. It's not going to be the left that starts this war. That's uh, there's two reasons I say that. We know who actually starts civil wars, and it's it's not the people most people assume. It's not the groups that are disadvantaged. It's not the groups who are poor or heavily discriminated against. The groups that tend to start these wars, which are often ethnically based, are the groups that had once been dominant but are in decline. And what's the group that has been dominant in the United States and in decline? It's white Christians. And and the system was set up to not advantage white Christians because they they didn't think um, America was going to become a non-white country. Um, there was a built-in advantage for rural America, which is now heavily white and, and Christian. They're the ones who are in decline and and they're the ones who are angry and resentful. Yeah, I, I get it. And uh, I mean, we, we inherited a similar, our constitution, as I'm sure you know, is, is similar uh, we, you know, we have uh, six states and two territories, and the six states in the constitution have the same number of senators. So, but having said yeah. that, our our population is much more urbanized than the, than the United States. Um, you've said that uh, talking about the social media platforms, you've said by promoting a sense of perpetual crisis, their algorithms give rise to a growing sense of despair, and you know I've talked about that, made that point as well, and also pointed to mainstream 
media, particularly Fox News and Murdoch's other outlets, which their model is is essentially one of angertainment. It's designed to rile people up and for exactly the same reason, it keeps them watching. To what extent has social media and that ability of people to now live in a self-reinforcing media silo, an echo chamber in fact, where their prejudices are not challenged but confirmed and indeed often radicalised, made more extreme, to what extent do you think that change in the media ecosystem has contributed to civil wars both globally and the potential of civil war in the, or an insurgency in the United States? It's, it's enormous. There, there are a number of really big new trends that we are seeing around the world, not just in the United States, but everywhere. And they're all happening at the same time. They all started to merge in the late 2000s, 2010. And I'll, I'll just give you, you know, probably the biggest and most important one. And that's the decline of democracy. The 20th century and up until about 2010 was really an, an age of democracy. It was the grand age of democracy. If you look at the number of countries that were becoming democratic from the end of World War II till 2010, it was fairly consistently an upward trend. Over that period of time, the world became more and more democratic to the point where Experts on democracy assumed that the whole world would eventually end in democracy. Do you remember Francis Fukuyama's famous article, the, you know, the uh, the end of history? The end of history was... F- famous last words. Yeah, democracy won. <laughs> democracy yeah. won. And, Mission and, accomplished. Yeah, and, we, and of course, everybody wanted to believe this because we also know that mature, healthy democracies don't fight each other. So we also thought, oh, and the added benefit is we're, we're all going to get peace. And then in 2010, this trend, this very long trend reversed itself. And it reversed itself in probably the most troubling way. It used to be if we had periods of democratic decline, it was the the fledgling new democracies. It was it was the democracy. It was the countries that were like trying to get there. Think about Hungary, and then they then they just backslid. Starting in 2010, it was the mature liberal democracies, the democracies that had never declined. The the UK, the United States. Sweden, France, uh, Germany, you were seeing declines across the globe, no matter how strong that democracy had, had been. And in fact, the one of the biggest data sets, which is, comes out of Sweden called the Varieties of Democracy data set, they have called, they called the year 2020 the year of autocratization. So we are now, since 2010, every single year, uh, in, you know, up until today, including today, every year we have more autocracies and less democracies. People suspect it's it's the rise of social media, but in particular, it's the rise of algorithms that have been designed for exactly what you said, for sort of, um, it, it, you know, to, to tap into people's most base emotions because that's what keeps them engaged on their devices. And this has allowed the enemies of democracy, 
And in particular, Vladimir Putin, who starting in 2010, pursued an aggressive disinformation campaign against all the liberal democracies of the world, including Australia. And, and it was designed to do, to do two things. It was designed to undercut, go, go directly to citizens in these countries and undercut their trust and their belief in democracy and to begin to so societal unrest by playing on whatever the hot button issues were in these countries. COVID was a perfect opportunity for Putin's disinformation campaign. He was instrumental in the Brexit vote, his disinformation campaign. And by creating um, an information environment and creating social media platforms that are essentially unregulated, this has created a backdoor way for these anti-Democrats and the enemies of de democracy to uh, attack these democracies unimpeded. It, it's been a gift to people who, who want to attack um, countries that in every other way are too powerful to attack. One of the points you made earlier, though, just and, and this is really relevant to where the U.S. goes from here. I mean, are you going to have a civil war? It's the sorting of American politics on the basis of race and religion, yeah. which is remarkable because, I mean, we, again, you know, I was brought up to believe that the politics was all about economics. Uh, it's the hip pocket nerve. Uh, it's the economy stupid. I mean, Pick your political aphorism, uh, you know, the kitchen table issues, it's interest rates, cost of living, jobs, all of those things. Is, I mean, every the number of uh, times I've said something like, you know, our policy is jobs and growth or jobs, 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 or, you know, that's, that, that's sort of the bread and butter of, used to be the bread and butter of politics. But you've got in the United States now a division, and I think we've seen this in Australia too, but not to the, anything like the same extent, a sorting on the basis of race uh, where the hot button political issues are not economic ones, but rather yes. identity issues or values issues. Yeah. So people are hung up about gay rights or abortion or, yeah. or you know, transgender issues, you know, transgender women playing women's sport. I mean, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's an issue, but the idea that that would occupy a lot of Mainstream attention is bizarre to me, but you know what? So what's happened? I mean, how, and how does this impact on the stability of America and its vulnerability to insurrection yeah. and even yeah. civil war? So the the group in America that is voting against its economic interest is, for the most part, the the white working class uh, with only a high school education. That group used to be solidly democratic. Mm -hmm. The Democratic Party is the party that pursues policies that help them. The Republicans are, are not. And what happened starting in 2008 is that white working class group gravitated towards the Republican Party and they are now the, the enthusiastic make America great again voters. The, they are now the, the far right. And the question is, okay, why did they find, why did they do that? And, and they did that in part because that group was, they, they were the losers in, in the globalization movement and, and in NAFTA. Um, they were the ones who used to have steady, well-paying uh, labor union jobs 
much of it in, in manufacturing in the auto industry. When those jobs left the United States, um, that actually happened under Clinton, who was a Democrat. Neither party made any effort to give that group a, a, some sort of alternative. Their unemployment rates are high. They're the ones who are suffering from the opioid uh, epidemic disproportionately. And Donald Trump came in and he started to talk about them and, and their needs. And, and this notion of make America great again is, is simply a, a way of, of talking about how you know, America was ba better when whites uh, were, were dominant. And of course, we know that, that groups that start violence are these groups that feel a deep sense of loss of status, a deep sense of resentment, a sense that they used to be in control in a country and now they no longer are. And it's their right to take their country back. And, you know, that's what we have here in the United States right now. It's, it's a very interesting issue, isn't it? The way in which the center-left party, the Democrats, and I think this to some extent has happened in many countries, but particularly markedly in the US, the centre-left party, with its very close relations with labour unions, uh, I mean, it wasn't actually created by the labour unions and the way the, you know, the labour parties in Australia and the UK were, where, where the, they are the political wing of the trade union movement. But nonetheless, it's a traditional working class base essentially forgot about the interests of their core constituency. And instead of being able to pivot back and reclaim that constituency with an economic message, they've been outflanked by the the right-wing party, uh, extreme right-wing party now, which yeah. talks about, you know, essentially non-economic issues yeah. and riles people up yeah. on that basis. Yes. Yeah. But this is so, so great talking with you. I mean, even though we're talking about really gloomy things. Yes. So what is going to happen? I mean, we all depend on the maintenance of American democracy. I mean, Australians held their breath in horror on January 6th just as much as Americans did. I mean, will the republic, will American democracy survive? Next year is going to be a really, really rocky year in, in America. Um, 2024 is, is kind of an all-hands-on-deck year, I think. And I worry about either outcome. If Joe Biden wins, and I'm assuming he'll be the nominee, the right is going to call foul. They're going to double down on the big lie. They're going to say, it's, look, it's now another election has been stolen from us. That in their mind is going to delegitimize democracy. And, and extremists in their ranks are going to say, look, we told you, we told you that the system is rigged against us. Um, working within the system isn't going to work. We, we need to turn to violence. And if the Republicans win, they've learned a lot from Trump's time in office. They are going to stack the judiciary with more loyalists. They are going to take every possible advantage they have and expand it. And, you know, do what Trump hoped to do, which was create a system where they never have to leave power again. And, and that worries me. So, Barbara, I mean, that's exactly what Viktor Orban has done in Hungary. Yes. And, and yes. yet on the Republican side of politics, and, you know, Tucker Carlson being a good example of this, he is, Orban is the most admired foreign leader. 
Yeah. I mean, the conservative wing of the Republican Party had their their conference in Budapest. (laughs) Um, You know, Orban is giving them the playbook of how to do this legally, how to do it legally and how to do it surreptitiously so that citizens don't complain. Yeah. Yes, you're right. And of course, you, you, you can still have a, in a society like that, you can still have an election as you can in Turkey. But if the incumbent authoritarian illiberal leader has so tilted the playing field that it is in practical terms impossible for the opposition to win, then it's the country has, for all intents and purposes, ceased to be a democracy. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, look, Barbara, thank you so much. Your warnings are very timely. As I said, we're as anxious as you are about what's happening in the United States. And I think for our own part, learning from your experiences and doing everything we can to ensure that our own country's democracy remains a resilient one. Yeah. Well, thank you for your interest. And I, all I can say is, boy, we're, we are going to fight the good fight and we are not going to give up. So I know. Well, we've got, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. So thank you very much, Bob. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. Good to see you. The podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Chaika. 